Our reading this morning is by Mary Oliver, a poem called Going to Walden. It isn't very far as highways lie. I might be back by nightfall, having seen the rough pines and the stones and the clear water. Friends argue that I might be wiser for it. They do not hear that far-off Yankee whisper, how dull we grow from hurrying here and there. Many have gone and think me half a fool to miss a day away in the cool country, maybe. But in a book I read and cherish, going to Walden is not so easy a thing as a green visit. It is a slow and difficult trick of living and finding it where you are. No truer American existed than Thoreau. That's what Ralph Ralph Waldo Emerson said in his eulogy words when Thoreau died in 1862. I'm glad my 4th of July task was to ponder Henry David Thoreau. July 4 was a big day for him. It was the date he began his two-year experiment at Walden Pond. And then there was that July 4th, nine years later, in 1854. For Americans in 1854, looking back at our War of Independence must have been for them something like looking back at World War II is for us. Their great generation had recently died, most of them, and they were wondering what next, who are we as a nation, how can we live out the best of the hopes of the founders. In July 1854 in Massachusetts, the anti-slavery movement was a fire, it was at its peak, and Anthony Burns, an escaped slave, had been arrested in Massachusetts and was tried in Boston and sent back to slavery in Virginia as the fugitive slave law required. And on June 28, 1854, the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society sent out notices and called for all who mean to be known as on Liberty's side to attend an Independence Day gathering at Harmony Grove, a popular recreation spot in Framingham. The announcement said that in memory of Anthony Burns' re-enslavement, the 4th of July would be observed as a day of deep humiliation and sorrow. New England abolitionists responded to the call and showed up to address the gathering. Estimates for the day's crowd vary from 600 to thousands. A portion, this is a quote, a portion of the grove had been formed into a little amphitheater with benches banked into the hillside and a speaker's platform festooned this day with banners depicting a downcast Massachusetts chained to a triumphant Virginia and an American flag turned upside down and edged with black crepe. The electrifying, end of quote, the electrifying speakers that day included Lucy Stone, 
John Pierpont, Sojourner Truth, and William Lloyd Garrison, who concluded his pre presentation by burning the U.S. Constitution. Unitarian minister Moncure Conway, a transcendentalist from the South, maybe the only one, introduced, <laughs> introduced Thoreau and later said, Thoreau had come all the way from Concord for this meeting. It was a rare thing for him to attend any meeting outside of Concord. He was there a representative of Concord, of science and letters, of those who could not quietly pursue their tasks while slavery was trampling down the rights of humankind. He was now clamoring for, he was now clamored for, says Conway, he was now clamored for and made a brief speech. He began with the simple words, you have my sympathy, it is all I have to give you. Alluding to the Boston commissioner who had surrendered Anthony Burns, his name was Edward G. Loring. Thoreau said, the fugitive's case was already decided by God, not Edward G. God, but simple God. This was said with such, says Conway, this was said with such serene unconsciousness of anything shocking in it that we were but mildly startled. End of quote. That day Thoreau told the crowd, the effect of a good government is to make life more valuable of a bad one to make it less valuable. I think of our work ahead with the proposed Minnesota Constitutional Marriage Amendment, which singles out one group, heterosexuals, for privileged rights, and I want to borrow Henry's line. The effect of a good government is to make life more valuable, of a bad one to make it less valuable. Henry said, essentially, that it was Massachusetts that was on trial, he said, will humankind never learn that policy is not morality and that it never secures any moral, light, but any moral right but considers merely what is expedient? What is wanted is people not of policy but of probity who recognize a higher law than the Constitution or the decision of the majority. The fate of the country does not depend on how you vote at the polls. The worst is as strong as the best at that game. It does not depend on what kind of paper you drop into the ballot box once a year, but on what kind of person you drop from your chamber into the street every morning. End of quote. Dr. Sandra Harbart Petrulionis, Thoreau scholar, said that in that speech, later published as slavery in Massachusetts, Thoreau offered the people a classic mix of abolitionist wrath and transcendentalist hope. The whole Anthony Burns episode was decisive in unifying popular opposition to slavery. And the month after Thoreau gave that speech, his eight-year work in progress, Walden, was published. Mr. Thoreau, said Emerson in his eulogy, was of short stature, firmly built, of light complexion, with strong, serious blue eyes and a grave aspect. His senses were acute, his frame well-knit and hardy, his hands strong and skillful in the use of tools. He could pace 16 rods more accurately than, any, than another man could measure them with rod and chain. He could find his path in the woods at night better with his feet than with his eyes. He could estimate the measure of a tree very well by his eye and could estimate the weight of a calf or a pig like a dealer. 
From a box containing a bushel or more of loose pencils, you know, his family made pencils, he could take up with his hands fast enough just a dozen pencils at every grasp. He was a good swimmer, runner, skater, boatman, and would probably outwalk most countrymen in a day's journey. It was a pleasure and a privilege to walk with him. He knew the country like a fox or a bird and passed through it as freely by paths of his own. Under his arm, he carried an old music book to press plants. And we actually have a Xerox page of that music music book with a, a press plant shadow on it. He carried an old music book to press plants in his pocket, his diary and pencil, a spyglass for birds, microscope, jackknife, and twine. He wore a straw hat, stout shoes, strong gray trousers to brave scrub oaks and to climb a tree for a hawk's or a squirrel's nest. His power of observation seemed to indicate additional senses. He saw as with a microscope, he heard as with an ear trumpet, and his memory was a photographic register of all he saw and heard. And yet, none knew better than he that it is not the fact that imports that's important, but the impression or effect of the fact on your mind. Every fact lay in glory in his mind, a type of the order and beauty of the whole. He chose to be rich by making his wants few. When asked at table what dish he preferred, he answered, the nearest. (laughs) Thoreau never faltered. He declined to give up his large ambition of knowledge and action for any narrow craft or profession, aiming at a much more comprehensive calling, the art of living well. So said Emerson, his good friend. Going to Walden is not so easy a thing as a green visit. It is the slow and difficult trick of living and finding it where you are. Twenty years ago, one of my colleagues sent me a contemporary greeting card done in watercolor and delicate ink drawing. In the image on the front, you see in the background amid the green green foliage a tiny cabin with teensy puffs of smoke coming out of the chimney and beside the cabin a teensy blue pond with a couple cattails sticking up out of it. And in the foreground in the meadow, there's a jolly, beaming, bearded man in a rough homespun suit and his arms flung out like he's following through on a pitch. And in big words across the top, Henry David Thoreau, and you open the card, and there's the same beaming guy with his mitt up in the air and the ball coming toward it, and the words across the top, Henry David Catch. (laughs) The colleague who sent me this was a member of a group, a clergy group it may have been, something like the Thoreau Unitarian Universalist Pastors, Thoreau UUP called themselves the Throw Ups for short. <clears throat> we are allowed to have a laugh at the expense of our own tribe, our own idiosyncratic family. Thank goodness. Thoreau and the transcendentalists are that for sure. They're kin, they're ours, they're water of life to us. They're the thirst-quenching waters of our family well, our living tradition. I was certainly baptized into this movement by the Transcendentalist tribe. 
and I love them, this motley band of 30 or 40 prolific, romantic, quirky, passionate, innovative men and women comprising a Boston Renaissance from 1820 through the Civil War. This motley band were a wave of our history, to use Ruth's wonderful image from June 19th, a wave of our history. And I'll say more about them as a wave and as a band of progressives next time I'm up here, July 24th. And there'll be more that Sunday about Thoreau from Dale. That band of progressives, and in that band, Henry David Thoreau played flute. You can see Henry's flute at the museum in Concord. It's made of fruit wood, reddish-brown with metal stops. His name and his father's carved into it. I understand he would sit in his rowboat out on the pond and play it. When Henry died at the age of 44, tuberculosis like so many others, Louisa May Alcott, one of his many transcendentalist friends, wrote a poem called Thoreau's Flute, and it includes these words. Our pan is dead. His pipe hangs mute beside the river. The bluebird chants a requiem. The genius of the wood is lost. Then, from the flute untouched by hands, there came a low, harmonious breath. For such as he, there is no death. He still will be potent presence, though unseen. Seek not for him. He is with thee. We thank Dave Junker for playing flute today and John Jensen for giving us excerpts from Ives. How perfect. And um, Dave is one of our congregational Thoreau scholars, as is the Reverend John Cummins, and also Dale Shui. Dale and his wife Kay are in Concord at this moment. Uh, Dale serves on the board of the Thoreau Society for 30 years. He and Kay have gone out to Concord in July for Thoreau events and for the birthday party because... Uh, Henry, uh, Henry's birthday is July 12th, which is Tuesday, and he will be 174 on <laughs> and going strong. On July 24th, Dale will speak to us here in the Cummins Room after church and tell us who Thoreau is for him, who he has been for him through these years, with a special emphasis on environmental aspects, a huge topic, and one I will barely mention today. Dale, I said, what can I say about Thoreau in a mere 20 minutes? There is so much of him. Yes, Dale said, he's everything. He's everything. End of sermon. (laughs) So Dale and Kay may be looking at Walden Pond at this moment as we are gathered. The pond is in pretty good shape these days, much better than back in the 1950s when there were So many hot dog stands and 35,000 visitors, I understand, on a summer weekend. Now the place is protected, and the tourist population is limited to, I think, 3,000 or 4,000 per weekend. The pines are tall again, and the water is clear and cool, as in Henry's day. Most Septembers, a child from this congregation brings a vessel of Walden Pond water from a family trip and adds it to the gathered waters on Communion Sunday. We'll do that actually in the well this coming September. Then we pour those combined waters into our peace garden outside, and we set aside some of that water and sterilize it and use it in our child dedication ritual 
touch the foreheads and hands and lips of our babes with water that contains molecules from Henry's pond. The pond was my well already dug, Thoreau wrote. It is a clear and deep green well, half a mile long and a mile and three quarters in circumference and contains about 61 and a half acres, a perennial spring in the midst of pine and oak woods without any visible inlet or outlet except by the clouds and evaporation. The shore is composed of a belt of smooth, rounded white stones like paving stones, except, excepting one or two short sand beaches, and is so steep that in many places a single leap will carry you into water over your head. Some think it is bottomless. He measured the pond, of course. The greatest depth was exactly 102 feet, to which may be added the five feet, which it has risen since, he measured, making 107 He says, I am thankful, this is in Walden, I am thankful that this pond was made deep and pure for a symbol. While people believe in the infinite, some ponds will be thought to be bottomless. The pond was his deep green well. Thoreau is a deep green well, too, infinite and bottomless. It has been so interesting to read Walden about once a decade Every 10 years works for me. (laughs) When I was 20, I read Walden in college. I read it as a literary classic, beautiful words from a bygone time. When I was 30, I reread it. Then it was a how-to book, a do-it-yourself manual for hippies, how to grow beans, how to survive on little, how to keep water cool in the summer underground, how to retrieve an axe that falls through the ice. Also, I was learning yoga then, and I admired Henry's embrace of Eastern religions. He read the texts. Next time I read Walden, I was 40 and a ministry student. Henry was required. Then he was Emerson's nature-loving pal, a nonconformist who spent a night in jail. And there was civil disobedience, which became a guidebook not only for Gandhi and King, but also for the Danish resistance in World War II and for South Africans resisting apartheid. In that, he said, when a sixth of the population of a nation which has undertaken to be the refuge of liberty are slaves, it is not too soon for honest men to rebel and revolutionize. When I was 50 and first put Thoreau in a sermon, I loved his patient, painstaking, progressive, scientific observations, especially in his last work, The Dispersion of Seeds, in which he radically agreed with Darwin. And last month during my vacation, I read Thoreau again, parts of Walden and some of his other writings where he says, in wildness is the preservation of the world. That's in his essay, Walking. Where he says, what is the use of a house if you haven't got a tolerable planet to put it on? That's from a letter where he says, the wisest person preaches no doctrines, has no scheme, sees no rafter, not even a cobweb against the heavens. It is clear sky. Can you put mysteries into words? Pray, what geographer are you that speak of heaven's topography? Whose friend are you that speak of God's personality? Tell me of the height of the mountains, of the moon, or of the diameter of space, and I may believe you, but of the secret history of the Almighty, and I shall pronounce thee mad. 
This time around, it was scarier reading Thoreau. Some of the time I was reading Thoreau, I was actually sitting in a rowboat on a placid, mirror-like river in Canada, in waters not so clear as Walden Pond, but perfectly calm, and it's a good thing, because Thoreau is enough to rock your boat. Emerson said Henry could size up a person like he sized up a cow or a tree. He said he was a searching judge of people. At first glance, he measured his companion and could report his weight and caliber. He detected paltering as readily in dignified and prosperous persons as in beggars and with equal scorn. Such dangerous frankness was in his dealing that his, his admirers called him that terrible Thoreau, as if he spoke when silent and was still present when he had departed. It isn't very far as highways lie. I might be back by nightfall, having seen the rough pines and the stones and the clear water. Friends argue that I might be wiser for it. They do not hear that far-off Yankee whisper, how dull we grow from hurrying here and there. It's dangerous, reading Thoreau. Mary Oliver knows this. That far-off Yankee whisper can get very close and loud. It's dangerous reading Thoreau because he asks something of us. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder how dull I have become with hurrying here and there. I am a creature of this culture, and I suspect I'm dulled to it in all manner of ways. I'm not awake to, and the point is to be awake. Only that day dawns to which we are awake, he says in Walden. The point is to stay awake when I leave the quiet river and re-enter the world of 35W and Walmart and dust storms in Phoenix and earthquakes in Arkansas and standoffs in the legislature and sad employment statistics and oil spills in Montana. I know the terrible throw will hang around now and be the unseen presence Louisa May Alcott and Emerson promised he'd be And he'll ask with Mary Oliver, tell me, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? What? Who will you save? What will you love? What slow and difficult tricks of living will help you stay awake? So this week I made a little list based on my reading. It's a four-word list. I have it handy for when the man bugs me. They're all P words to make it simple. Thoreau said simplify. So perspective, patience, practice, and praise. They're all things Thoreau was good at, and they're tricks of living that can help us stay awake. Perspective says to me, do whatever you have to do to get some perspective. You don't have to build a cabin in the woods, but do something. Walk, journal, travel, meditate, spend time with immigrants, something that helps you get some distance on a commercial society that's in your face. The universe is wider than our views of it, says Thoreau. Patience. Take the long view. It's radical. Thoreau did it. Legislators should be urged to try it. Practice. Those creative thoughts in our minds, let them travel from head to hands. What Emerson wrote about, Thoreau lived. Praise. Thoreau's life was all about praise. His work was an anthem to the mysterious, 
surging energy at the core of life. It's what gave him the steam for patience and practice and perspective. Going to Walden is not so easy a thing as a green visit. It's the slow and difficult trick of living and finding it where you are. So really, there's one more on the list. Perspective, patience, practice, praise, and place. Finding it where you are. Emerson said, Thoreau always talked about his neighborhood, village, pond, forest, as if it was the most favored place in the world, and it had all the important American plants, oaks, willows, pines, beech, maple. Emerson said, I think his fancy for referring everything to the meridian of Concord did not grow out of any ignorance or depreciation of other longitudes and latitudes, but was rather a playful expression of his conviction that the best place for each is where he or she stands. The far-off Yankee whispers that the trick of living is to live right where we are. These past couple weeks, I have wondered what his voice sounded like. It would be so great to actually hear him, but alas, there, there's no recording anywhere, no YouTube video or MP3. It's too late. None of us will ever hear him unless we meet him in that heaven he wishes we wouldn't try to describe. <laughs> so when I hear that Yankee whispering to me, or when you hear him whispering to you, if you do, nudging, commenting, suggesting, questioning. It's just a voice we've made up for Henry. It's just the voice we've imagined because maybe it's the voice we need. It's our own voice and maybe the best and truest, which is fine and surely the only one Henry would approve. So we're good. We are originals. We'll do our best here and now, but with the help and the backing of our saints, the faithful departed, the great cloud of witnesses. Praise them. Bless them. Blessed be and amen. <laughs>